Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to another episode of the Boat Hunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is by far the easiest way to begin filming your hunts. Whether it's with the budget-friendly Solo or the 4K Tacticam 5.0, Tacticam has something for all levels of self-filmers. They even give you the ability to capture the shot through your scope or your crossbow with their film through scope system. You can check that out at Tacticam.com. This week's episode, we talk with Jason Red of Timber Ninja Outdoors. Jason is a very interesting guy. He's a guy that uh, when you sit down and speak with him, it's like you'd known him forever. I mean, it's it, he's the epitome of a like-minded individual. And so uh, Timber Ninja Outdoors was the first guys to bring the carbon fiber sticks, uh, super light, ultra light climbing sticks to market. And uh, they were working on some other products. Uh, but Jason also has a background in uh, safety equipment. So uh, we talk a lot on this podcast about um, safety, um, kind of doing your, your homework on different brands and products as, uh, as you're buying from some of these upstart companies like Timber Ninja Outdoors and a lot of the other uh, tree stand saddle platform manufacturers that are out there um so this is a real fun episode i think you guys are gonna like it um i just got to give a quick shout out to uh, our latest patreon from indiana uh ken ruppel uh so ken is now entered into the giveaway we're actually giving away a set of the b sticks um i had that set up and uh, ordered before we had this podcast with jason so uh don't don't let that uh, sway your opinion of these uh, Jason's products in the in the climbing sticks, but uh, we are going to be giving away a set of the B sticks with uh, some other prizes to uh, one of our lucky Patreons um, at the end of the quarter. So right before most of the seasons are starting, um, we're going to be giving away that. We're we're giving away a Tacticam solo package, as we mentioned in the intro. Um, we'll be giving away a Base Map Pro membership. Uh, so Base Map. Um, has all the features of uh, any of the other mapping services. Basemap allows you to download as large of an area as your phone uh, will handle. And uh, it has a myriad of different maps, different layers, um, different things. Um, and the price point, uh, it's $30 for the entire country for the year. And you can get 20% off of that, so it ends up being $24 if you go online and you use the code CHRONICLES. Um, so we're giving away one of those. Um, and then for, I, ha I just was digging around in my stuff, and I've got uh, another monthly uh, giveaway package. So I'll be giving that out here um, in the next week or so. I'll go live and do that, as well as uh, one of our giveaways for a free month of the All Access Vitals Live, um, which is... Uh, learning platform that's interactive. Uh, we we'll get to have some conversations with guys like Dan Infall, Johnny Eberhardt, uh, Troy Fowler, Greg Litzinger, uh, Garrett Prawl. Um, throughout the month, they do learning sessions, and uh, we'll we'll give away uh, one of those access all access passes to uh, one of our patrons. And if you want to check that out, 
um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Um, uh, that is just like a crowdfunding for uh, podcasts, creators, and the like. Um, so it helps us with uh, operating costs, equipment costs, um, all the things that are associated with running this podcast. But if that's not for you, no big deal. Uh, please just tell someone about our podcast. Uh, we really appreciate um, everybody, uh, you know, sharing the things that we're doing well. And then leave us a review so we know um, how we're doing and things that we can improve on. And if you really like it, click that five-star button and subscribe to our YouTube. Um, but, you know, all in all, we just appreciate every single one of the listeners, everybody that uh, keeps tuning in week after week, month after month. And, you know, for the years that we've been doing this, uh, we've developed some real great friendships with the listeners. So uh, we do appreciate every single one of you. And I do believe you're going to really like this podcast. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Adam and John on the phone tonight with uh, Jason Red. Timber Ninja Outdoors. Um, so I don't know if you've maybe seen these or whatever. Um, this is another one of the, you know, a, a product that's come out. And it's kind of one of the ones I think that, that raises some eyebrows. And it's kind of like keeps pushing to that that thing. And, and you know, I'm going to do my best to be as, uh, as hard on Jason as I can. Because the question that always comes up is, how light is too light or how much does it matter or, you know, whatever uh, along those lines, as far as like ounces versus pounds versus how far are you going? How far are you actually really going when you say you're going two miles in or whatever? And so Jason's got the, he, he's the one that's come out with the, the carbon fiber sticks. And I, I know that there's a lot of questions um, circulating all the forums and, and things like that about how can it possibly be safe? You know, how do you know, you know, what happens if it's too cold or this or that, but we'll get into that here on the podcast. Um, so how are you doing tonight, Jason? Man, I'm doing pretty good. Today's actually my birthday. I turned 40 today. So it's like, uh, this sounds a little morbid, but I've always considered 40 being like the, the apex, you know, it's like the tipping point in my life. You know, I always said if I made it past 80, that was like a mile marker for me. So um, but yeah, it's been a good day, man. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, happy birthday. My birthday was on Friday and interestingly enough, isn't today, uh, your good buddy, uh, Adrian's birthday. It is man. And I just <laughs> found that out through your podcast. So when I was listening to it the other day, I immediately texted him and I was like, dude, I completely understand why we have this like manly romantic relationship with one another is because we share the same birthday. Well, I was um, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna bring that up, but he told me lots of interesting <laughs> facts about you that I didn't know if they were true or not, and he was not yeah. pulling any punches. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you two have a pretty interesting relationship. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a good dude, man. He told me about that. We uh we joke a lot, man. He's a great guy. That was a good podcast you did with him too. It's it's good, like. He's one of the most humble people, man, and just as genuine as they come. Just a great guy. Well, awesome. Awesome. So let's get a little bit of background on you because I listened to a couple of the other podcasts that you were on anyways, and uh, it, it sounds like you talk about like a humble individual or whatever. It sounds like you're like a, a, a 
extremely interesting individual. Like, it's like, man, if you want to do something cool, like Jason's the guy he's done it. He's that's what he does. So what, what's your background in your, like your hunting style and, um, you know, how did you come up hunting and, and, and kind of get where you are today? Um, well, I, I, I was born in Arkansas and I started hunting there when I was, um, I mean, my grandfather was taking me with him. I don't know when I was probably three or four, you know, like going out and sitting in duck blinds and stuff. Then I started hunting on my own at seven and, you know, I was born in 1980 and when we grew up, when I was seven, I got turned loose in a deer stand by myself. It's not, you know, like, uh, the the safety factor wasn't, you know, you just kind of had to do it back then. And so, um, yeah, you know, I grew up there and hunted a lot, a lot of public land down there. And I, you know, I've said this a few times, but you know, we hunted public land just because we didn't have any money. We couldn't afford to, uh, be in leases or anything like that. And, uh, I just, I just really enjoyed that. And it, everything was an adventure, you know, like leaving the house to go to deer camp uh, in public land, sleeping in tents was just always cool. And it always resonated with me and, and kind of, you know, expanded through my, my, um, adolescent years and to my twenties, you know, I was traveling, doing some hunting. I, I got into endurance sports, raced bicycles, traveled around the country doing that. Uh, you know, I, adventure for surfing rock climbing um you know still do i mean also the hunting so like yeah i mean i just like getting out and doing things um so it's it's really fun i mean you know we like people say all the time we only live once right so anytime i can i have a very um a very supportive uh, spouse and so i i get to you know get out on some ventures every year and that's just what i really like to do (laughs) and so like i think one thing that's key here um in in that and what you've done with the you know bringing this uh these sticks to market is um what is your background for your job like and do you have any history in like engineering or manufacturing or anything or how did you get into like probably you know I said it before when we talked about broadheads, like that's kind of like the worst market to get into because everybody loves them or hates them. But the climbing system market seems to be just the same because everybody's is the best and it doesn't need to be that light if it's not the lightest. And if it is the lightest, then, you know, why does it got to be so heavy? You know, mine are better. You can carry them. You know, just, there's just so much infighting. <laughs> over those sure. those couple categories so like what's your background and then why'd you choose the worst or second worst category to get into yeah that's a good question there's a um yeah it seems like the mobile hunting what i call that hype products seem to have the most competition and a little bickering i guess uh so my background is i've been in safety for 16 years i worked for a manufacturer of hand protection for a long time i did a lot of uh end user consultations for you know designing and developing hand protection left there and went to work for a customer got into all aspects of safety uh i'm a certified fall protection specialist i you know consult inspect um then help people, you know, with their issues, 
in plants and I own a company that uh, we're a sales rep firm for manufacturers of safety and industrial equipment. So we sell to people like Granger. And so most of my career has been in safety. And then, you know, with my rock climbing background, um, I, you know, obviously have a lot of, you know, interest in um, experience dealing with things at heights, ropes, uh, knots, climbing systems, you know, uh, so it all comes kind of comes together there. But through my day job, I have a lot of connections through manufacturers that make all the parts that we use in our products. So that's kind of how it was. I'm not going to say easy for me to do this, but it definitely gave me a leg up. You know, it's some of these plants. It's really hard to get into, man. Like, um, you know, there's so many people calling to talk about stuff, but unless you're real serious or you have some type of connection, they don't want to work with you to develop a product, you know, because to do a art, you know, research and develop on a product for them is, you know, 500 to a thousand dollars. And it's really not worth their time unless they really feel that um, you, you're serious about bringing something to market. So have already having a relationship with some of these people really helped us uh, get off the ground with the products. So why carbon fiber? Well, um, for me, you know, I, I've been mobile hunting pretty, you know, pretty much my whole life, uh, just because of, you know, how mainly hunted public that time and, uh, and coming up through cycling and other sports where I use carbon fiber, you know, there's materials that were getting used that weren't getting used in the mobile hunting, um, avid, you know, area. So, you know, it just, <laughs> few years back it just really just dawned on me it's like you know nobody's really doing anything but the same thing i mean essentially a lot of stuff is just like some little modification to an already existing material um you know they they make people have definitely made products stack better uh they made them lighter mainly by shortening them and things like that because you know at the end of the day metal is metal it's going to weigh the same regardless right so the only way to really change a product it, you know, from a weight perspective and even a sound barrier perspective was to change the material. And, um, when I was, you know, wanting to make a better product for myself, I was like, well, nobody's done anything with carbon fiber. So I'm going to start playing with that. I know it works. I mean, they use it in so many other, you know, we, use, you know, things that I use for outdoor, you know, ice axes, um, backpack frames, bicycles, hiking sticks, you know, there's a carbon fiber element to all of those. So why hasn't anybody done it with like a climbing stick? And so I started playing with that because I knew it would be lighter. It would be quieter. And uh, also it wouldn't have any, it doesn't hold cold or heat. So, you know, I, I think we've all, if you hunt in cold areas, your hands are cold walking to the stand, you go and grab your sticks, you know, like you feel that instantly, you know, it makes it your hands don't want to operate the same. So there's a lot of benefits to it for sure. So, but it's not as easy as from a DIY perspective as it is with aluminum. You can't just slap some holes in it and throw some steps on it and call her good. You know, that, that fails or, you know, it can fail. And I definitely learned that in the beginning. So, yeah, I mean, so uh, actually John has regressed now. But, you know, we were both shooting carbon fiber 
riser bows. And that's mm-hmm. the one biggest thing is in the cold when you grab that riser. And so that's going to be a shock to you. I just, I'm looking at your bow now saying. Well, that's why I haven't got rid of my carbon bow. <laughs> <laughs> but that that is one of the biggest, I was telling Adam when we were talking about this pod, doing this podcast, I'm like, you know, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is when I get down, especially at the end of the hunt and you're wrapping up your sticks to put them away and you can't stack them and stuff without taking your gloves off or I can't anyway. It's like, you know, and so your, your hands are already cold from sitting all evening or morning. And then you go and got to take your gloves off and handle these aluminum sticks. And it's, you know, like zero degrees out by the time you're done, you, you can't even, you know, move your hands. That's a huge oh, yeah. pain in the ass. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is, man. And, you know, and, uh, you know, and besides just the carbon fiber element of it being a lighter product, one thing that really bugged me was there wasn't anybody at that time making products that really stack very well. And like even ours today, like you, you have to put a little bit of a lashing, you know, either a rope or, you know, uh, Austin at 3D or Genesis 3D made some clips that go with our products that hold it together. Um, but once they're semi even secure they don't crumble you know i always i use an analogy a lot of the products and i'm not picking on lone wolf but that's just the product i i used lone wolf and i used muddies mostly and you know you had to stagger step them in the dark and when you think you'd have them right they would crumble over and that would just that would tick me off so bad you know i mean you guys have probably been there i mean people are getting a little bit better with their stacking methods for sticks but that was a big thing for me and also just when you go to stack them or unstack them, the metal clean, man, that's a very unnatural noise. I mean, how many people are buying sticks today and even premium sticks? And I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but then you have to turn around and go and put stealth strips on them. And, you know, and that takes time and money. And, you know, people have asked me this question a lot about our product and I'm like, well, what's your time worth? Cause I mean, I know what my time is valued at at an hourly rate and, it's a lot more than another, another 20 bucks to buy something that I don't have to stealth strip, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now. Yeah. I had the, the muddy pros at the beginning of last year. And that, that was the exactly what you said. You'd have them all stacked and you'd think that they were clipped in and you'd go to tighten them up and they just fall apart. And it's like, come on. (laughs) So I, I, I I definitely feel you on that one. Uh, Do you think it's the, I mean, Obviously, you know, we do bow hunting podcasts, so that's kind of where we're we're at. But, you mm-hmm. know, there's carbon fiber risers. You know, everybody shoots carbon arrows. I believe, like, in the high-end rifle world, there's carbon fiber barrels. Um, why are people not using – why do you think we haven't seen a shift in that? Is it, you know, cost prohibitive or manufacturing? Uh, I mean – I think it's uh... – I think it's uh, a little bit of both. It's not easy to get into and figure figure it out. Like I, I've spent uh, multiple thousands of dollars going through prototypes to to get ones that work for the long run. You know, because as I've mentioned many times in the share, you know, our products have went through the ASTM testing and passed that and passed the repetitive motion testing. Um, you know, so we wanted something that was really durable and it comes with a price point because, you know, anybody can get on online metals and see what 
you know, one inch aluminum tube costs. And, and you can even go to some of the manufacturers that make a carbon fiber tube and you can instantly tell there's a, there's a, a really high cost of doing business to jump into the carbon fiber world. Um, it's just, it's expensive and it, you, you definitely have to either know people that work with carbon fiber, which I have connections that do. And that's what really helped us get through some of the struggles we had in the beginning. Uh, but, um, it's not cheap, you know, either you gotta pay for their time or you have to have a connection there. Um, I do know, uh, with the manufacturer we're working with uh, on our stands that there have been people reach out to them about making a stand prototype before. And when, <laughs> when the cost came up, you know, it kind of, that's where the conversation ended. So it's, it, it's, it's an expensive endeavor to get started with, but I felt like it was something worthwhile. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't do this to, try to make a quick buck you know it's something i was really invested in as a project and and fun and really we wanted to have a cool platform to bring out innovative products that also is a you know essentially a, a catapult for giving back to conservation because that's something that you know we're, we're big on conservation and, hunt, and hunter recruitment so if we can create cool products that get attention and then we make some money and we can give money back to support these things everybody wins at the end you know yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, Austin with uh, Genesis 3D. He's right here in our same town or in our county. I met him and uh, picked up some of the, the tenders in person from him um, mm -hmm. last year or so, and I've been trying to connect with him here and there. But um, the sticks that you have have a um, – why I mentioned that is, you know, the sticks that you have are using a polymer for the steps. Mm -hmm. Um with this rise in, um, you know, 3D printing and, you know, everybody making everything, do you see, and, and your background in safety, um, you know, do you see there being, like, people coming out with 3D printed steps or things like that? I mean, I know he does a real good job with his bow hanger saying, this is not a step, this is not a step. Um, you know, how, the, with the, with the polymer step how are you making sure that that's the i mean I'm, with your background i'm sure that it's that but the safety portion of that being polymer on like the actual part that seems to have your the amount of force on it yeah so we worked with um a plastics engineer to come up with the best polymer that would withstand the stress load the different temperature variances and everything to and, and we found that i mean the 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 tests the, the testing proves proves it now it, it does have a little flex like our polymer you know our step does have a little bit of flex at times some people notice it some people don't um <clears throat> but that's what it's supposed to do you know it's kind of like buildings and bridges you know if, if you've ever stopped on a major bridge crossing let's say the mississippi river you feel the bridge jumping and and that's just because it has to give you know and that's how like our polymer step reacts. It has, you know, it, it give a little bit, but it's not bad. Like, um, you know, there was a guy that posted a video of him like torquing on it back and forth and it was moving, but it didn't break, you know? I mean, and, and, you know, and we shared test results to prove that, Hey, this thing is one under 300 pounds of load 4,000 times and didn't break. Um, but so with our product, we buy sheet material and it's machined. It's not, 
it's not uh, 3D printed and it's not um, injection molded either. And I honestly, I could do it. I could do it cheaper through injection molding, but the problem is there potentially could be cons consistency. And I didn't want to go that route. I'd much rather just, you know, do something that we knew was tried and true and it works. And and the material that we use is used in a lot of applications in replace of aluminum and um, parts and things like that. So it uh, by itself also works, you know, just like, you know, aluminum products and performs. Okay. I mean, but, I, um, I just think it's important to, to bring up because every time yeah. something new comes out there's the diy copycat guy that says i can do that and like oh it's just a polymer i can 3d print one of those and the difference yeah. i think there needs to be a, a <laughs> distinction yeah 3d printed <laughs> step yeah you guys can use it um, yeah <laughs> well man I, I have a buddy that's uh, that's in prosthetics he makes uh carbon fiber prosthetics he owns his own company and he has a 3d printer 3d printers are awesome and they work but like, you know, if you look at what Austin's doing right now and he's getting pretty big, like you got to keep adding a lot of printers because it, it's not a real fast process and it's not a very cheap process. Uh, it makes cool stuff and, and 3D printing is pretty consistent. But, um, man, the cost of entry there, because essentially where we're at today, from my understanding of talking to people and my buddy that's in prosthetics is the 3D printers are really good for um, making prototypes, but they're just not. It's not that it's not quite there yet for production. Um, you know, you you just have to keep adding these printers, which are not cheap. But um, you know, with the milling, you know, we set the machine up and you know, it just runs stock through there and just cuts it like it would aluminum. You know, and actually the tool life is longer when you're cutting, uh, you know, the polymer than it is aluminum too. So. But it still isn't cheap. You know, we're doing this all in the United States. So we're paying American wages and uh, to keep this dream alive, you know. Right. Now, uh, we've been talking about the the sticks and uh, you've got a, a couple other products and things like that coming out. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about just because of your background in rock climbing and, uh, you know, I, I know one of the products you have is like the little mini one stick stick for the the one stick guys like what is your preferred climbing method what do you bring uh because i know i've heard you talk on the other podcasts about you know doing the rope climbing and the you know with a rock climbing background that seems to be like right in your wheelhouse and like when i look at it it looks like a hell no uh there's no <laughs> way i'm gonna do that much farting around up and down and i mean be sweating and if you drop something like what a mess like it just seems so terrible so i thought it'd be a good yeah. topic to, to touch on with you yeah man um you know honestly i really do like you know my buddy and i that's a climber started doing this years ago we call it the the rad system rapid ascent and descent and essentially we just take an arborist bag throw it over a limb pull a climbing rope up and then we use you know a hand ascender climbing harness and you know an aider which i just use a, a a dyneema climbing sling and uh in a grigory a grigory device and we essentially ascend the rope 
and and that's the same thing we do on rock climbing walls sometimes like if if you're on like a a big wall uh a big multi-pitch route you know like a lot of people are familiar with alex honnell and people that you know and tommy codwell that climb the dawn Don wall they work these sections of uh, of the route multiple times whilst they actually you know completed the climb in one go and a lot of times how you do that is you you rappel down uh on a fixed line and and and, and then get your gear up you're having to jug these lines on the cinder so it's pretty efficient for us that it, people that have done it a lot but it's not there's there's a little bit of labor involved with that and um but in my opinion it's the safest manner if you're running on a fixed line that's attached to a tree limb obviously if the tree limb breaks your you know um sol but you're always you're always tied into something with a, a protective device and then after the hunt you can just you know swing out and wrap down off your you know on that line but the problem with that is you know especially you know for me i go into a lot of places i've never even been before so i don't even know what trees are going to be there what types of trees you can get a decent idea from aerial topo you know aerial um uh yeah topo maps and stuff but you don't know for sure and you don't know the age of the growth sometimes so you don't know if they have limbs down low so it's you know you're sitting there trying to find a limb so i my given method is i use sticks and i prefer the 20 inch stick and that was essentially that's our flagship product for this you know our c1 carbon fiber sticks is the 20 inch and the reason i um like that is because I carry a frame pack in my frame pack and torso. I'm six foot two. My frame pack is uh, 24 inches and that 20 inch fits in that profile very well. So I, that was a big problem I was having with some of the longer sticks when I was using like the longer, you know, the three step um, lone wolves is it was sticking above my head and getting caught in brush, brush and things like that when I'm going through the woods and, you know, just a pain in the ass. So we do a, uh, the 20 inch that's perfect, never really gets, you know, hung up in anything, especially if you have a pack that has, you know, a brain or, you know, a lid. Some people call it a lid. You can cover your top step up and it just slips right over your pack when you get into some thick brush. And um, I'm not a big advocate for hunting high. I don't hunt very high. Usually 10 to 12 feet is probably where I end up the most, if I would say. Um, I, I put more attention into how I'm setting up, you know, what my cover looks like and making sure I'm in the shadows and things like that. Yeah. John's got the same, same frame, same size, same problems. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, interesting to say that you don't hunt high because it seems like if you wanted to sell a whole bunch of sticks, you'd need, be like ah, you know i gotta have five of them i'm getting way yeah. up there you know yeah yeah um it, yeah have you tried the one stick because that that seems to be like a in this this game of you know uh, minimal well internet internet badasses like well they're trying to get as light as possible and as high as possible and that always comes up like this is how my how much my system weighs and it doesn't matter how light it is mm. there's always some guy that says well, if you just had one stick, it'd be that much lighter, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have. We we, we came out with the micro stick, and, and really, I kept getting a lot of requests for it. It's the only reason we brought that out. It's not a method that I use, but I have tried it. 
it is a lot of work, you know, I mean, maybe somebody can do it a lot more efficiently than I can, but, you know, essentially to get your stick, you got to essentially come back down a little bit to pull your stick back up to you. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of work in that. I mean, that's why I still say, in my opinion, the most efficient way of getting up, up a tree is with, you know, three or four sticks. And I mean, people use eighters, so they're able to cut down on some. Um, and yeah, I, I'd love to tell you to buy, you know, a stack of 30 sticks. So we sell more sticks. That's just not the person I am. I'm going to be quite frank with you and tell you what, the, in my opinion, what's the most efficient. Uh, I, I, I use mostly four sticks and an eighter on the bottom one sometimes, but I usually don't even need that. Well, there's just so much, I don't know, bad information out there. I don't know if it's bad information, but everybody, everybody is an expert. And that's one of the things that we've had to, you know, completely go the other way and say that, you know, we are just regular guys. We don't know anything. I'm the world's worst bow hunter and John's a garage yeah. bow tech and don't do what <laughs> we do. This is just how we do it because there's so many people, whether they've got a podcast, a YouTube channel or whatever, saying this is the way or showing bad things. Um, and I'm sure that you've seen that. How do you react to some of these things that are just so blatantly unsafe from your, your safety background, you know, when you're seeing them and people saying that this is the way. Yeah, it's tough, man. Uh, I mean, I've seen it for years in other sports. Um, you know, a lot of guys, you, you see it thrown out there a lot. I mean, and we get criticism because, you know, obviously we have one of the most expensive sticks on the market right now. It's like, well, I can get it done with, you know, a set of four hot heliums at a hundred bucks, you know? And it's like, yeah, I can, I can do a lot of things. Like I can kill a deer with a $200 Sage recurve, but I want to know that I have a good quality longbow that I pay a thousand dollars for, you know, and just that way there's nothing can go wrong. And, we see these issues happen all the time with people's products, but it really, you know, in cycling, we saw this all the time. Guys always talking about having the lightest bike and well, there's a, a point of diminishing returns. Like, you know, if you, if you have the lightest bike, but you're overweight, like you're not really faster or if you're fitness, you're not putting the time in to be, um, good at riding a bicycle and fast, like it doesn't matter what your bike weighs, like you need to work on your fitness. I mean, the same thing with hunting, like I don't have a problem packing 60 pounds in for multiple days, you know, five, 10, 20 miles a day. It's no big deal to me, but you know, I do like stuff to be lighter and, uh, it, cause it is more efficient. It's easier to carry up the tree and things like that. So, and from a safety perspective, you know, there, there's a lot of people jumping into the market and making recommendations that, I don't, I'm not going to say I necessarily agree with, but you know, if they've done their testing, you know, and can share that information to qualify that their product's safe, it's all good. But, you know, I mean, people just like to, you know, we're all guys and there's egos involved, you know, and somebody, and some people just want to have a, an opinion, you know, and, and we're all entitled to that. I'll never tell anybody that our product's the best. Like it's, it's not the best for everybody because, sales philosophy one-on-one is people buy from people they like and who are like them. So there's going to be people that gravitate to companies regardless if they even if they like their product just because they like who runs the company and what they stand for. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. yeah I mean, absolutely. that that's, I mean, 
kind of like podcasting 101. Like when I set this up, you know, I knew people were going to have to take time to get to know our personalities mm-hmm. so that they would have to, you know, be able to resonate with our thoughts and our thought process and, and to be, you know, there wasn't anything out there at that time that resonated with me or John. So we said, well, well let's do this. But the main thing that I tried to do was the best audio experience because it doesn't matter how um, identifiable we are. It doesn't matter how you know good or bad our information is. If you can't listen to it, then nobody's going to listen. So, you know, that was that was one of the things. And so we knew that we were regular guys. And if we as regular guys could do this, we would get more regular guys to, so to, listen, to listen, you know. As long as it was yeah. as long as they could hear us. <laughs> yeah. John, John still struggles with the hearing us part. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean you know, and from a product a manufacturer perspective the internet's amazing and e-commerce is amazing for allowing small businesses these days to be able to get your products out through the internet to you know millions of people you know essentially in the next few years there's going to be more people that have access to the internet and they do have you know electricity and clean drinking water right so you know you look at companies that start lifestyle brand t-shirts if, if you look back in the day and you, you, you started a store in a town, like, you know, there's a small chance of you actually become successful. But you can have a crappy company of a lifestyle brand of shirt. And, but when your market's so much bigger, you're going to be able to generate a lot of sales. But from what we do, you know, so that allows us to do that with mobile hunting products too. But there's no like barrier to get into the industry as far as, you know, safety requirements, insurance and things like that. Because in the past, um, when people, the people that were making hunting products, for instance, they had their main channel of being able to be successful was going through big box stores, right? And big box stores, they're not going to sell anything unless you have all your ducks in a row from a product liability perspective, insurance, you know, all these things. So, those people and the ones that were doing it back then, I, I feel are really still doing it. But sometimes you have to question if some of these other companies that are coming into the market are, are doing their due diligence and having all these things done because it, there's nothing to say that, you know, you and I could go today and start making a product and, you know, two of us, two of us get on together with a combined weight of 300 pounds. It doesn't break. We'll call her good, you know, and there's a reason that, um, you know, some of the standards that essentially like the big box stores wouldn't accept any manufacturer's product that wasn't TMA um, certified, you know, and TMA worked with ASTM to develop standards for testing on hunting products, right? Same way fall protection, ASTM sets standards for fall protection, climbing companies do that. And, and so, um, there, you know, there was, there was a, that that was like the minimal point of entry to get your products out there unless you were selling out of the fab shop to local people you know um so yeah it, it's it's quite concerning you know because anybody can do anything and hope it's good you know and like just putting 300 pounds on something and it doesn't break the first time doesn't mean that like it's not going to break in three years i mean we all see pictures of products and, and well-known products and 
things do happen. Don't get me wrong. Like there's quality issues that could come up with material or whatever, but we all see bent standoffs. We see hardware breaking, all that type of stuff. And you have to wonder, well, some, some products, you know, did they go through some of this strenuous testing, you know, like the repetitive motion test, in my opinion, is the best thing that, uh, ASTM does when they're testing hunting products to determine the durability of your product. When you, so for instance, for the repetitive motion for a climbing stick, if you have two steps on the stick, it has to pass a thousand repetitive motions of 300 pounds. You know, essentially it's a, it equates to uh, a, a certain amount of days, you know, times a certain amount, a number of years is, is how they come up with that because it's all durability. And so when you were talking about climbing up um, with your rad system or like a single rope, double rope mm-hmm. system for, you know, I think that's what's most um, common, uh, mm-hmm. commonly seen. Do, uh, do you, you said that that's like the, the safest way because you're always tied in. Um, and that automatically brings us to like saddle hunting. You know, when you were doing that, I mean, I know you've got a, a, a tree stand and uh, I don't know if you were working on a, a saddle platform or, or anything along that, so we can talk about that. But, I mean, have you hunted from your rock harness? Uh, have you saddle hunted? How, I mean, what's your style uh, in that regard? Because that I, seems I to be safe, uh, you know. Yeah, that, that I, I prim- well, I may do some things sometimes that aren't very safe. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't really always use a lineman's belt when I climb, but I, I've I'm pretty confident climbing and where I'm at, like, and aware, like of how many points of contacts I have and how close I keep my body to, I mean, it's just how you, how you climb up a, a granite wall, you know, you got to keep your body close. And even if my stick blows out, it's going to, you know, like say it kicks out or something like that. It, it's going to go down and more than likely I'm not going to go very far, you know, cause I don't put a lot of weight leaning back. Um, but with like a, you know, a saddle, you know, I've hunted out of saddle some. I'm going to do a little bit more this year just because um, for the early season, tight on some beds. Uh, I, I feel it's a really good quiet method, an easy method to get in without having to move a lot. But for me, you know, in my experience from hanging around and climbing harnesses and other systems, it's tough for me me to hang like that all day uh, i like a lean to a uh, lock-on stand sorry where i can stand up and move around which you know i guess you technically kind of can do that with some uh saddles and platform setups but most people are trying to go light as light as they excuse me as light as they can so their platforms are really small so there's not much um movement there you know what i mean does that make sense mm-hmm. uh, but from a safety perspective, the reason I say like a rope system or even if you're using like a saddle with combination of a lineman's belt, then going directly into tether, uh, you're always hooked in. And we call that in the fall protection world, we call that, you know, it's, it's a hundred percent tie off. That's why you see like um, in construction environments, they'll have what they call dual leg uh, lanyards that attach to their uh, fall protection harness because if you're moving long distance and you come to an area where if you have two legs you can always have one connected if you have to unconnect another one to say go around an i-beam or something like that um 
that is the beauty of like a fixed line rope system is you're always in that rope system. So no matter what happens, you're not going to, if you do fall, you're always going to get caught. Same thing is if a guy's using a saddle and he's using his lineman's belt as he's going up the tree and he doesn't disconnect his lineman's belt uh, until he gets his tether connected and locked in safe on his um, saddle, that's pretty much a hundred percent system there too. So there's very few areas where a serious injury could happen, you know? Um, Cause there's also not much rope in the system of a saddle uh, to where you're even going to take much of a fall, you know, cause you're always pretty taut, you know what I mean? There's, there's not any slack in your rope or anything. So you're really not going to fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, Mike, that was like kind of a leading question into, you know, I guess from your safety background and everything, what are your thoughts on like kind of what's going on with the ASTM and the TMA standards for saddles? Because they're still being held to the tree stand thing and they're, you know, they're working on their own set of standards right now. We did a, a podcast with uh, Ernie Power and kind of outlined mm-hmm. how they're going through that. But, you know, with, with with you and your rock climbing background and safety background and, you know, having hunted from a saddle, I mean, uh, even saying that a saddle is up to the TMA standards, um, you know, I guess it has to be sufficient because there's no other standard, but I mean, what could they be doing differently or what, what tests, um, you know, would they need to change from, from your perspective? Um, so I've had that conversation with a couple of guys. So from a fall protection perspective in, in general industry, you have fall, you know, if, if you're in a at height environment, you either can be in restraint or you can be in fall protection and restraint means there you're restrained where there's no chance of you having a fall right and, and fall protections where you know you need some freedom of movement you know multiple feet or whatever so in the event of a fall there has to be shock load in, to, to absorb the amount of shock so essentially um most people are familiar if they're familiar with climbing um, fall protection harnesses and lanyards the general entry standard is a six foot lanyard with a um a, cl- a climbing or not climbing a fall protection harness so when you fall and you're attached you know most time you're going to fall when everything breaks in there's going to there's going to be about 1800 pounds of load go to your body because you're taking a six foot fall and 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 you have all this delongation and stuff you know where your system kind of has blowout methods to kind of absorb some of that shock um so so that's a that's fall protection, and then you have fall restraint where you have a harness where you're tied in on a fixed line where there's really you're not going to have that much rope or play in the system that six foot we talked about for the body to absorb to have to absorb all that because you couldn't it's it's going to be very painful to take eighteen hundred pounds of force to your body especially if you don't know how to properly put on a, a harness or a, you know climbing harness or safety harness any of them. So what, you know, the problem they're having right now, from my understanding, is they're trying to hold a saddle to a fall protection standard, whereas 
in my opinion, it should be more held accountable to a restraint system because there's not many chances. And I think I've heard uh, Greg talk about this before uh, in maybe a form or something. And it's true. It's like there's not much chance for you to put enough rope in the system to where you're, you're going to have to absorb that much load, you know. Um, but I do feel that they're working. My understanding is there's a panel of saddle manufacturers that are proactive in working with TMA and ASTM to come up with a better set of standards to that. But, you know, as it stands right now, all they have to hold people accountable is um, <clears throat> is the standard all harness type scenario, which in my opinion, the, the two don't relate very well. And what that doesn't mean as a manufacturer, you shouldn't be doing some due diligence to at least having your products tested for a, a workable static safety load, you know, which is, you know, depending on what your weight rating, 300 pounds or whatever. Which I know, uh, well, I know because I've heard from, I know Tether does that, uh, and just because I, I know some people over there and they use the same facility that I use for testing. So I do know they go there. Yeah. And I mean, I know that there's other companies like that are on that panel, but I also know that there's other companies out there that have just blatantly said, well, the standard doesn't apply to us. And, there isn't a standard for saddles, so we're not going to be part of this until there is a standard. And, I mean, uh, that's what, that's... From, what, from what Ernie said is that ASTM is just a, a, a checker of a standard. They said, we can hold you accountable to the, to the standard, but you have to come up with it. You know your product better than us. And yeah. so, you know, there is no standard to be held to. They have to come up with that. And, and it has to meet all the criteria for ASTM. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, that's because that's a slippery slope, you know, because there's not a standard. But, you know, if somebody if you're not having some type of testing done on your product, I mean, from my perspective, if I'm sitting in my shoes like like I am and I look at my products, all this is voluntary. Nothing is required. I don't have to have my stuff tested. Nobody does because there's nothing going to keep you. And that's what we we're talking about earlier. No, nothing's going to keep you from going to sell your product if it's not tested or not, but a first off, I would be able to sleep at night, not knowing that my product had been tested outside of what I've done. You know, I mean, there's a reason the, these you know, some of these standards are put in place and you can use them from other industries to make sure your product is safe. Um, it's like, you know, the same argument comes up. I think, you know, I'm not in the platform business at this point, but I hear people saying, well, there's no platform standard. Well, no, there's not, but you can take your product to uh, a third-party testing lab and have it tested to a two-time safety factor of 300 to guarantee and show people if they ask, hey, here's my report. It shows that my platform can hold this weight, you know, um, whereas just because you've been welding for 40 years doesn't mean that, you know, you're you're an engineer, you know. I mean, I'd much rather pe people take somebody else's word for it. I mean, there's a reason that companies have to have audits on their accounting, right? You know, and there's a reason OSHA exists. It's because you can't always depend on people to make the right decisions. And then I guess back to that fall restraint 
thing I was just thinking about. I think I think it's Alabama, but mm-hmm. they require a fall restraint device, and there was some some talk about that you have to wear a safety harness and a saddle because it's not not rated as a fall. You know, it's it's not a safety harness, but but they're hunter safety, their rules for the state, and it may not be Alabama, it's, it's one of the southern states down there, um, requires that. So I just thought that was interesting from, from that perspective. That's a, I mean, that's kind of a, I would say that maybe a recommendation. I don't know if, well, I mean, I, I don't know enough about that, like if game wardens are going around and checking your safety equipment, you know, because at the end of the day, we still can climb up in a tree like a monkey and sit on a limb, you know, uh, but you know, I, I do, I do, I do feel there's room for improvement, like for it to be more of a standard entry of business to have some type of testing done. Um, just I mean, that's just what how it works with any any other type of product where you're putting somebody's health and life at risk. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean with. With some of the things I do at work, it's like there has to be like quadruple checks because, I mean, we could kill somebody every day. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's, it's like, again, that whole not sleeping at night thing. I couldn't imagine, you know, putting out products, sending them to people and, and saying, yeah, well. It should know. be good enough. Or, you know, we, we, you know, I hooked it up to my truck and we pulled on it. Like, I don't know how many pounds it was or anything, but it, I mean, we pulled it with the with the four by four. So it's got to be good. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you know i was saying earlier that you you can't like um just drill holes in the carbon and call it good like i do have a set of sticks that i just drilled holes in originally and put some steps on there and you know they torqued and i and stuff but they never completely failed but there were some times you know before we worked and figured out uh to really have make them bomb proof like uh they didn't i had these set of sticks i have holes drilled on and i sent them to a guy a picture of them to the guy the other day and because somebody was saying that you know carbon fiber splinters and it completely decompromises it and it will it will just collapse on you like a essentially like a trap door and i sent a guy this picture i was like hey here's a set that i hunted and yeah they creaked and split and and they also have like 15 holes where I kept changing hole patterns and moving the sticks around, you know? Um, so things can somewhat work and not completely fail on you. Same thing with aluminum, you know, and even when you see a standoff break because of cheap hardware or something like usually this bends all the way around, you know, um, before it doesn't just completely collapse from, you know, from up under you. Right. Now let's get into that a little bit real quick about the, the durability. And I think what you said there, I mean, one of the things I, you know, you're, you're concerned about all this stuff, you know, at height and, you know, if you did have some sort of compromise, you know, what, where does the, where does the safety concern? And I would imagine that, that misnomer, that conversation that you just had could have possibly stemmed from, you know, what we see or what we tend to think of with carbon fiber and arrows, you know, because it's like, you know, they tell you every single time, check your arrow, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I feel like that's going, 
you know, however many hundreds of miles an hour right past your fingers, like it's not. Yeah. And so, you know, that's what you see the splintering and, and all that. And everybody's broken carbon arrows, some of us more than others. Um, and so maybe that's where that that's coming from. So what is that durability? And I've heard you talk about it before about like, you know, not just throwing them out of the tree stand as you, you know, descend or whatever. Um, but you know, they're going to get banged around on rocks and, you know, on other things. So as far as durability. I mean, they're, they're extremely solid. I mean, I tell people, which I mean, anything you buy that's a premium price, you I mean, I just don't throw stuff around. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I've said this before. If you drop an aluminum stick or I race bicycles and I've raced bicycles when they were aluminum until they changed to carbon fiber. If you dented a bicycle mountain bike, for instance, it compromises that aluminum at that, that area where it was bent. It can bend you know, fold right there. I mean, I've seen it happen on forks on bikes. I've seen complete frames completely crack. The same thing could happen if you damage carbon fiber, like you could have a weakness there. Um, you know, it won't completely just trap door and blow up on you. Um, so, but the same thing can happen to aluminum. And what I tell people and I'm actually about to release a video on this, not just for our products, because I don't see I don't see much of this out there. It's thorough inspection of all of your equipment, like how to properly inspect ropes, how to properly inspect your harnesses, whether it be a saddle or a climbing harness, how to go through your sticks. Like how many times have you heard people talk about, you know, having a good premium product that uses quarter quarter inch hardware that may not be grade eight and it starts to bend or it's always coming loose. So you need to check these things before you go into the woods. Same thing when we rock climb and when what I train in um, fall protection is before you go and use your products that are protecting you, you should always inspect them. You know, you need to make sure there's nowhere, there's no nick or anything like that. I've heard Greg Godfrey talk about that, about people saying, when they first brought out saddles, hey, what if I'm swinging my broadhead across my tether? Is it going to completely cut it and I fall? You know, it will nick, but it's not going to completely explode and fall to your death. You know, you, I think he did a, uh, he kept, he had a saw on it for a while. You know, I think he put himself up like six inches off the ground or something, but he just wanted to test that theory himself. We see the same thing with, um, in rock climbing with a sharp edge and like, say you're, repelling off a, a root and your ropes work on that edge there's protection in those ropes to keep them from completely blowing up you know they kind of it takes a while you have a sheath before you get to your core of the rope so ultimately i mean you know to put this in perspective is you should be looking at your products all the time to make sure there's no type of flaws happening you know things can happen there's things that could happen to any type of product that you're just unaware of um, you know, a bolt couldn't get, get tightened the, the proper way from, from the manufacturer, you know, you should inspect this stuff. And, you know, a lot of people's products that are coming in right now too, you have to assemble them yourself. So, you know, and I've heard some are more complicated than others. So how do you know that was even done right to the manufacturer's specs outside of, uh, 
the instructions that came with them. You know what I mean? Like some people are better at putting stuff together than others. Yeah. I, John, you care to weigh in on that, John? <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, I am, you know, and I think it kind of goes to like what you do, John, with the, with the bows, as far as when you put them back together, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, when I put them back together, I go through a whole checklist. Every time I take a bow out of a press, I look at all the attachment points of the, the cables, you know, on the, you know, the little knobs on each wheel. I go through looking at it all because, you know, anything can happen when you're working on something. If you just pull it out, give it a pull back without ch- double checking, it can easily blow up in your face. <laughs> yeah, we've had that happen a couple times even with all the checks so <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean things happen man like i had a arrow blow up on me a couple years ago just because you know i didn't i i hit i um, you know i hit an arrow with another arrow but really didn't pay much attention to it and essentially the knock was cracked and exploded on me when i shot you know like you you have to do your due diligence to look at your stuff you know bows are Obviously, there's a lot of energy uh, binded into that product, so something could go, you know, and obviously has went serious wrong for a lot of people. So, same thing there, you know, you, you have to inspect your weapons. I mean, inspection's key. I don't think that's talked about enough. Um, that's like I said, that's why I was going to release that video. It's not just for our products; it's for all stuff, even not related to help people. Because I, I mean, how many times you guys obviously follow some of these groups? You see people asking about like the rope starting to fray a little bit. If that's a safety issue, like even the sheathing, like starting to see a little bit of wear, like what is safe and what is not safe. And I've, I've seen some keyboard engineers make some false accusations on that too, you know? So, um, you know, it, it is pretty easy to understand what is safe and what is not safe. So yeah, I think it'd be important for us to put something out there to help people. And especially given your background, both in the rock climbing and the safety world, I mean, if you want to talk about ropes and any of that, I mean, there's a, a pedigree there where you can follow and say, okay, like, this is why I know this. Not, I saw a YouTube video on it, and I'm going to tell you what I learned from that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, man, if I'm – and what's funny to me is, like, I think some people don't think don't think um it's as serious at 20 foot as it is at a thousand feet you know what i mean like it's all the same like people die all the time even in rock climbing from 20 foot falls um so like inspecting your gear is important like people put a lot more attention into inspecting like rock climbing stuff because they're like well i'm about to go up a thousand feet so i need to go through my rope every time but like you know we go anytime we go on a climbing trip, we pull our gear out of the car, we go through the rope um, as we're, you know, uncoiling the rope. We always go through it and make sure there's no nicks or anything in it where you're seeing the core. We call it a core shot rope. When you start to see the core through the sheath, that's when it can be dangerous. Um, same thing works with a lot of these ropes that people are using for their tethers and lineman's belts, you know, that, that same type of inspection would translate there as well. And obviously with webbing or anything, it's just, seeing a you know if there's a big nick in it or something like that which and you know i mean thinking about it or you, you say it like that 
it's it would be super simple to check a eight foot rope for your tether every time and just for peace of mind where you know like you guys are checking a rope for climbing rocks i mean how how long are how long are your your big ropes like that <laughs> i mean how long does it take to do that uh usually um 200 feet right. is is what most of them. i mean you can use longer ones but usually you know like 200 feet's a longer rope or 50 meters is a common one as well right so just and it, i mean it doesn't take much time because we always have to uncoil anyway because you wouldn't want to knot in your rope when you start climbing up and your your ropes having to run through pieces of gear you know which are attached through carabiners a knot wouldn't pull through it so you can get into a really bad situation if you were to find out you have a knot in your rope you right. know and you're 200 feet off the you know off the deck yeah. or 100 feet halfway through the pitch well, I mean, I, I just put an interesting correlation here. He said, you know, so many people die from 20-foot falls and you only hunt 10 to 12 feet. And he said you don't do all the safety, yeah. safety stuff all the time. Is that why? You say, well, it's, I'll be fine. No. It's only 10 feet. No, I mean, I, I, I need to do a better job of, of using my own, using a lineman's belt, man. Like, um, I just, you know, we all have to do a risk analysis when we do anything. And... Um, that's one thing I am going to get better at using a lineman's belt. But besides that, I'm always attached. Um, you know, especially when I get into the tree, although I did hunt a tree last year, uh, I was hunting this buck in the swamp in South Carolina. And the only tree I could find was this burnt dead, uh, pine tree. And so I just put my stand up about six foot and I didn't wear anything. So I was like, well, if it falls, I want to be able to just jump out. You know? right. so, <laughs> be attached I'd, to I'd it. much rather be able to jump out than be attached to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think we've all been there when on those really windy days and you're in a kind of suspect tree and you're thinking, man, if this falls and I'm stuck to it, like it's awful. So, yeah. Yeah. I totally uh, get that. Um, oh dude. Yeah. Especially with climbers, man. Climbers. I had more close calls with climbers than I have with anything. I think me and climbers, uh, I, I've had, I've had to climb down a bunch of trees with just the top section of my climber yeah, a lot yeah. of times. So more times than I'd like to admit. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially the days before you know, like when I was coming up, they nobody wore safety harnesses, you know, and. uh my my best friend broke his shoulder on a climbing stand. Um, a knot broke that he was on, and the whole climbing stand slid to the bottom of the tree and kind of kicked him off the back. And he was still attached with his feet into the platform and oh. swung him down and landed on his shoulder and snapped his shoulder. Uh, we were like I don't know, twelve or something like that. <laughs> I would be young again. <laughs> yeah, today. Yeah, that was scary. paralyzed. Wow. Yeah, man. I mean, things can happen. Um, this WMA that I got, a guy that's a manager of the w, this WMA that I hunt down in South Carolina, some, he had to be airlifted last year because he fell out of his stand when he was climbing up. He wasn't wearing a, um, any type of harness or anything and fell backwards, got broke his back. Yeah, we were hunting mm-hmm. last year, and um, we kept hearing this chopper circling around and there was a kid like maybe three miles away from us or so that fell out of a tree and didn't have any cell phone service and ended up having like just barely got a text 
out and they had to come out and find him. It was uh, it pretty, I don't know, eye-opening, humbling. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's not much talked about about the accident. So in rock climbing, American Alpine Club, you know, which also creates American Alpine Journal, they put out a, a, a book every year that investigates and talks about every recorded climbing accident. And the reason they do that is to help educate people. And oddly enough, the number one cause of deaths and major injuries in rock climbing is people rappelling off the ends of the ropes, um, which is a common practice when you're rappelling is always to have knots in your ropes. And, you know, it would be pretty cool if there was something like that put out and it may be, and I'm just unaware of it, but for the hunting industry, like, because there's a lot of accidents that happen every year. Um, so, because, you know, one thing, especially with people saddle hunting, I hear, I read a thing today, people were concerned about the potential failure of like a ropeman or another, any type of ascending device. Um, so they back it up with a prusik or things like that, which, you know, in repelling, sometimes we back up our repel device with a prusik in the vent that our hand comes off. Uh, like if we, Sometimes you have to do these like swinging repels and stuff like that where you can come in contact with a wall and could knock your hand loose or something. So a press it will back it up. Um, so, you know, some guys are doing that just to, you know, be redundant in their system, which isn't a bad thing, you know? Right. Yeah. I guess where do they get that information or how is it reported? I mean, when you think about, when I think about hunting, um, is there a, a, I don't know, like a database or like some sort of mandate that it has to, like they are able to search through the hospital records or is it voluntary? I mean, I guess well, I'm just thinking of how it's reported. Um, well, I mean, you know, like most accidents where somebody really gets potentially serious injured, there's going to be some type of, you know, EMT or, you know, fire department or something that comes in. Uh, same thing with rock climbing. Most of the time when somebody gets seriously injured rock climbing, they have to bring out some type of search and rescue team. Uh, so I do know that, uh, I can't remember if it's TMA has, or I believe it's TMA does have people that do investigation on incidents that they do, that they hear about that way they can better, you know, improve some of the standards and things that they're doing. But yeah, I mean, to your point, there's stuff that just doesn't make it to them. I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, that would be good, but I, I'm, I guess in the hunting industry, I, you, so many people hunt out of such bullshit stuff. Like, I mean, I can think of all sorts of old wooden stands that, people hunt out of and they don't use a safety harness because it's a big giant platform you know <laughs> yeah. they, they don't inspect their cables you know every year there's somebody that says you know i'm so glad i was wearing my safety harness because i the cables broke on my tree stand that's been out in my property for seven years and i never looked yeah. at it and you know the so, squirrel chewed to the ratchet strap holding my whole tree stand up yeah i mean so yeah that inspection portion i mean it seems like it would ultimately lead back to to that <laughs> well yeah it comes back to the user and that's why you see with a lot of manufacturers that 
they really go above and beyond with their verbiage and their warning labels, which, you know, there, there is a, that's one thing that the labs in, when you have your products tested TMA, they go through your warning labels and stuff like that to make sure, you know, you're covered there. Cause there's certain things you're not supposed to do. I mean, like with climbing sticks, it's not preferred to jump up and down on your sticks. You know, pretty much every manufacturer that makes climbing sticks has that in their warning verbiage. Um, and to your point, like, yeah, like how many, if you've ever hunted a private lease or you were in public that you're able to leave stands in, how many stand like lock on stands, for instance, have you seen that have been strapped to the tree and the trees grown around the strap? I've seen that numerous times oh, yeah. uh, or, or old wooden ladder stands and stuff that boards are falling off and rotten. It's, you know, at the end of the day, the user has to take responsibility as well, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that common, some common sense is involved too. Yeah. But I mean, like, so let's say that that's the, uh, um, higher end millennium stand that's left out there or the Menards Walmart big game. If you leave them out there for five years, you know, you're the strap's going to be UV rotted. Yeah. All, I mean, or squirrel chewed. It's going to be screwed. So it doesn't matter that that one stand costs 50 bucks and the other one costs 300 bucks. You still didn't yeah. take care of it. And it, you know, right. You don't change oh, the yeah. oil on your Ferrari. Same as your Honda Civic, you know, yeah. there's, there's bound yeah. to be issues. Oh, I know, man. Like you definitely do. And, that's the thing is like we as manufacturers, we can only guarantee the safety of the product. We cannot guarantee your safety because we don't know everybody's ability. And like, if they do have a prof proper inspection protocol, what they're, you know, with climbing sticks, for instance, like how comfortable are you climbing? Uh, some people, I see it all the time in, in some of these groups, people talking about they're scared, scared of heights. And, but you know, they love hunting and they want to do it. So they're trying to conquer that fear. I know firsthand what vertigo and, you know, when the, those little demons start talking in your head, like what it can do, it can cause people to completely freak out and fall. Um, so like we can't guarantee like what somebody's ability is. Um, we can only guarantee the safety of the actual endurability of the product, you know? So it's, it's, it's a slippery slope, man. Um, uh, because, yeah, I mean, if you have, especially if you have crappy hardware, you know, those bolts are going to rust and snap over a few years and UV starts breaking down poly, poly, which is what's used in most, you know, all webbing, essentially, you know, UV light starts breaking that down over time. So, yeah, you can't leave this stuff out uh, for long periods. I mean, squirrels, squirrels can chew on ropes and things like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not to say that we don't, we don't do it, but it's, Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man. Like how many people, you know, growing up that hunted like some type of private land, you always hear about that old stand that they've hunted for 20 years, you know, and I've hunted on some people's private land and you get in those things and you're just sitting there sweating the whole time, especially in the days before using climbing harness, you know, like a harness of any type. Um, and I talk about this, like one time when I was younger, I met this old guy that was a bow hunter and, he taught me a method that he used and I was using it where you use climbing spikes to climb a tree and took a piece of plywood that was notched out and you just pushed it down into the wedge, you know, of a fork tree and you just stood there all day, you know, with no harness or anything like it's, we've definitely come a long way. <laughs> so. 
Well, you talk about that balance aspect. John, the first time he hunted out of a saddle, he hunted out of it for like one hunt, two hunts, and then got in a tree stand and almost fell like <laughs> just from the, having the climbing harness on. Well, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, you're talking about like, you know, the fall restraint or being, you know, in or restrained in the tree or, you know, whatever the terminology is. You want, I want, went from the saddle where you're always hooked in. There's no possible way you're going to fall out. It, you're like just hooked to the tree and there's no issues of balance or anything. And then the next night we go back out and Adam's filming. He's in the saddle and I get back on my tree stand and just in one hunt, you know, I had my harness on and stuff, but then I, I just would like lean out and look around and all of a sudden I would just catch myself like almost falling out of the tree because of the, like I wasn't hooked in and static to it. Oh yeah. Or, or people get in a rush. And I heard a guy talking on a podcast the other day that had a really close encounter last year with his saddle is when he went to clip into his bridge, he clipped in, you know, it was dark and he'd been up there swinging around in it before daylight. And, um, when it got daylight, he looked at it and he was only, it, the bridge he was using was like a webbing bridge and the carabiner never clipped all the way around. And he didn't, it was a, and it even was a screw lock carabiner, I believe. And he didn't screw it down. And it essentially was only halfway. It was hung halfway in the webbing. Does that make sense? Like the hook yeah. was just kind of there and it was essentially open. And he said he'd been swinging around on it. I mean, things happen like that all the time. We get in this zone and fail to check the system. Um, and that's where, I do feel like, you know, from a static position, I don't think screw lock um, carabiners are always completely necessary. You can use a wire gate beaner because it is a static. There's not much movement going up and down for it to really come unclipped. But having a, if you get into the process of always using a, a screw type carabiner, it will imprint in your brain most of the time that, Hey, I have to screw this down. So you always make sure it's clipped, you know? Um, so, I mean, having a good system and not getting in a rush is the definitely most important. Yeah. That I had a close encounter last year with the saddle as well with, I was using my lineman's belt and instead of mm. using the carabiner, I, I'd like to get rid of one of the carabiners and do a girth hitch through the loop. Yeah. Well, I was, it was like one of the first few times I had the saddle and I didn't have like two setups with my lineman and, and my tether. And so I like got out there and I hooked in with my linemans and luckily it had, I had a knot tied on the end. And when I slipped, yeah, oh, yeah. when I slipped it through, I missed the the loop like in the dark yep and luckily like the knot like caught in the in the back side of the loop and here i'm up i didn't realize it until it's daylight you know i'm yep. up there hooking in i'm putting my my stuff up or my stand on and actually it was it wasn't even it was my harness is what it was yeah. it wasn't my i wasn't even in the the saddle the saddle i was hey I, I still had my hang on tree stand that's what it was i got up there and i had my lineman on but it was it was not hooked in right and i'm like 
holy crap, I'm up, you know, 18 feet and there's stumps and debris down below my tree. If I would have fallen, I would have, you know, probably got impaled or at least, you know, probably would have broke my neck. But yeah, that's uh, you know, an accident like that, you know, and for me, when I, you, you hear me talk about saying I don't use a lineman's belt sometimes, you know, it's, it, it's like because I feel more comfortable with all my if I have at least three points of contact. I feel pretty confident that I'm even if my stick kicked out, I'm not really going anywhere. Whereas when you lean all the way back into the lineman's belt, if your system is not completely secure and like you didn't tie that or didn't connect a, a carabiner correctly, or, or your, you know, your ropeman, if, you know, some people use a ropeman on their, um, linemen's, you know, you put all your weight back there and most time, you know, you're taking your hands off the tree because you, you trust that system. If that goes, man, you're about to be in some, Falling backwards like that is a very dangerous way to fall. Yeah. I'd much rather fall straight down than I would on my back. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But, I mean, I, I did, I've done that before, honestly. Uh, like in training for rock climbing, we climb at climbing gyms, and some of them have what they call an auto belay, where it's a belay device that's on. Um, it's it's kind of like um, as you go up, it's you know, it's it's kind of like a seatbelt. So you know, you pull it out it's usually attached to the top of the, the climbing route and they usually have them tied off at the bottom to where when you want to clip it to yourself, you undo it from the bottom and you attach it to your climbing harness and you climb up the route. And when you fall, it catches like a seat belt and slowly lowers you back to the ground. Well, I was in a zone one day um, on a wall outside that's like 40 foot. And I was just running through a training routine. It was just completely focused. And I start climbing and I get up about 25 feet and realize I've never clipped myself into my heart. I never clipped into that auto belay. And, uh, and so I start to panic a little bit and, and I just had to control myself and, and start down climbing. And, uh, and I had to go through this really hard section where I, I kind of had on this climbing route, I, I climbed out over this roof, you know, like where you're kind of, upside down for a little bit so i had to like down climb through that stuff and ultimately i got real pumped out and i had to essentially take a 12 foot fall but i you know i evaluated the situation i was like i'd much rather like jump down 12 feet than risk going through this section pumped out and falling backwards on my back or head you know what i mean right but i was just in that zone the way we get you know especially if you're running late hunting like you you don't take that extra time to check your system and accidents happen. I mean, I've had a few friends die rock climbing because they didn't check their system properly. They did something wrong, you know, like it, it, it happens and it happens to great people, you know, um, cause we get caught up in other things and don't run through our, our process. So you mentioned that your, uh, your birthday's today that you're 40. You, you were telling me the other day, you got a pretty big trip coming up for your, uh, 40th birthday here probably when this this airs you'll be headed out so you want to tell us a little bit about the the hunt you got coming up here in the next week or so yeah man uh i'm heading out to alaska on august the 5th and today yeah today's july 26th so got uh essentially was it not this wednesday but next wednesday i'll be heading out my buddy my buddy from uh, colorado we grew up together and he moved 
to Colorado while he was in the military. And when he got out of the military, he stayed out there. And that's who I do a lot of my Western trips. It's usually just he and I. And um, he turned 40 this year, too. And we're going and uh, doing a fly-in trip into the North Brooks Range uh, for 10 days to chase caribou. Pretty exciting, man. That's like Alaska's been a dream of mine since I was a kid. Like, uh, and I've said this on a few podcasts. Like, when I grow up, I really I want to be a sheep hunter, uh, essentially a sheep guide. Like, I, I'd like to scale back my life here in the next five to ten years and start becoming a guide or something up there because I, I love getting in the big mountains, man. And um, so this trip will hopefully confirm if the passion is there after I get into that type of environment, but. Yeah, it should be a really good time, man. Um, Caribou hasn't been the top of my list, but it's kind of like where you should cut your teeth in Alaska adventures with the caribou from you know research I've I've done. What are you taking out there for uh, hunting equipment? Uh, like a weapon or just overall yeah. gear? Yeah, uh, I'm taking my longbow because uh, some of the areas and you really don't know where you're gonna get dropped off. Uh, until you get there because the the charter services you know have a you know since they fly in and out they have a decent idea you know daily of where the herd is and they want to put you in the areas with the best um where the herd the migration is coming through so uh some of that terrain is stockable for a boat especially like we're getting dropped off in a in a float with a float plane and my understanding from reading is areas that have those types of um, rivers or lakes offer some terrain variants where it can be stockable for a bow, but I'm not going so diehard that like, if I don't get it with a bow, I'm not going to kill anything. Like if I see a good animal, you know, at 300 yards, I'm carrying, I've got my, I've got my boomstick with me too. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to, you know, put all my hats on to being a diehard bow hunter, but it would be really cool. I, I definitely would take, take a a lesser caliber animal with my bow before a larger one with a gun, you know, uh, if, if the opportunity presented itself. That's sweet. Yeah. We, so we talked to a Michigan guy here, Jim echo. He's been out to Alaska. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times, like it was like once or twice a year for the last 30 years or something like that. I mean, That's it was awesome. just, just insane. But uh, I know I heard you talk about it on another podcast about the simplicity of traditional equipment he's a traditional hunter but um he went on this musk ox hunt and i don't think he told it on the podcast we're gonna have to get him back on to to tell it but he got all the way there and after he went through tsa and everything he had his muzzleloader with him because it was muzzleloader season but he's a diehard traditional hunter and uh, got out there with no bowstring for his recurve so he ended up shooting a musk ox with a muzzleloader but you know, that it, it could be as simple as, you know, less moving parts, less to break, just need an extra string. But if you don't have any string, um, yeah, it still, it still presents challenges. Oh man. Yeah. That would suck. Man. I heard, <laughs> I heard on a podcast, I can't remember who it was, uh, is a traditional bow hunter, but I think it was when they went through Canada or somewhere, the TSA took his arrows. His arrows were missing, and he's pr- pretty sure they took his arrows. So he got to camp without any arrows. Um, that would be horrible. But you know, my buddy's bringing a gun, so if something like that happened, at least one of us hopefully will have a gun. That's the biggest fear with uh, 
most of my Western trips I drive. Um, but you know, with this trip, I've got like three connections and, you know, we all know how airlines can lose your luggage. And that's been like my biggest fear of this whole trip is like some of my gear getting lost. Cause we're kind of on a time crunch. We get there on the fifth and we, we pick up a, a rental truck and we drive, I think it's 372 miles up the hall road to catch a, uh, a float plane. So yeah, man, hope, hope all that's good. But regardless, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And honestly, with, everything that's going on in the world today, I, I really kind of need to unplug from, from media for a little bit. So that's going to be like, honestly, the, the biggest attribute of this whole hunt is just being able to unplug for a couple of weeks. Sounds good. So what is your, uh, what, what archery equipment are you using right now? I mean, what is your bow? What's that? What's your bow setup and equipment? Um, so man, I have, I have five different, traditional bows that I circulate through but on this trip I'm carrying my tol- I have a Tolkien two-piece uh, whip and it's a, um, a 50 pound 50 at 28 and so it's you know with my draw link I believe it's like right at 54 pounds and um, and I'm using uh, this year I'm shooting day six 350 arrows and actually they're broadheads on this trip with wild fletching feathers and uh which that's a really cool feather company i don't know if you've heard of them but they take um they grind turkey feathers like from wild turkeys and so a wild turkey has more natural oil on their feathers than domestic turkey feathers which most feathers that you buy from the store are domestic turkeys so you know, the, the ones with the oil withstand the weather a little bit, you know, rain a little bit better and moisture, but I am going to fletch up a few arrows with, uh, four fletched trad veins. Uh, I started using those last year and they worked out pretty well. They're a little delicate, but, um, no more than I need them. I, I prefer shooting the feather personally, but. So what's the, what's your, like your final arrow weight on that on setup like that? Uh, with that final arrow weight, it's like, I believe it was like right at 580. So it's a little over 10 grains per, per inch. Um, I do have another bow set up where I shoot tough head broadheads and that, that arrow comes in. It's about the same pound bow and that, that, um, that arrow is right at like, I think 650. Uh, which man, it makes my bow so quiet, but. I wanted to be a little bit closer to that 10 grains per inch just with a caribou. I'm willing to take a little bit longer shot than I would like, like say a white tail or black bear or something. Right. Yeah. I, so we've got a couple traditional bows and I absolutely love shooting them. I got to get some mm-hmm. arrows built with, uh, with feathers. Everything I've got is just veins and they're just my old ragtag arrows, but there's just something about shooting instinctual that I just think is so fun. Like it's more of a, I know that it's like referred to as like the struggle stick or whatever, but I don't, I don't get as frustrated with it because I feel like there's that margin of error, you know, because there is no sights, there's no everything, you know, it's just refining that process where with the compound, it's like, I know what I know the process, like what's supposed to happen, and when it doesn't go wrong, I, I know that it's just me that screwed it up. And there's, I don't know, 
uh, it's yeah. just a more enjoyable experience. I'm actually uh, working with a guy that's one of our listeners. I'm going to buy one of his bows because he's got a uh, uh, custom bow being built, but um, it's one of the Stalker Coyotes with the uh, oh, cool. longbow limbs on it. So I'm pretty excited about getting my hands on that. Man, yeah, it's really fun. I I really enjoy shooting a traditional bow. It's uh, it is very, it, it's very mental. Um, like if my mind's not clear, like I usually don't shoot as good. Like I have to really like step and clear my mind to to have good groups. Like this, it's you know, like with a compound. I'm not saying compound shooting is easy. Don't get me wrong, but like you have so many things engineered into there to help you with your you know with your anchor point you know like far as draw stops and things like that to where you know as long as you're somewhat steady and you're not just letting it rip like you can shoot a pretty good group you know especially you know 30 yards or under um and that's what i ran into is i wasn't having fun shooting a compound anymore unless i was like shooting out 70 plus yards where i was really having a focus and, and make it very mental because there was very small margin of error. Um, whereas with that traditional bow, man, like, you know, you, you have to repeat that anchor point and everything and shot sequence every time, if you want to be somewhat consistent and, um, it takes a lot of work, man. I, I have a lot of fun and when it goes where you want it to, it is a good feeling. Um, and then also like, I think you were kind of saying, if you, since you don't have sights or anything, if you do make a mistake, miss something, people don't give you as much crap about it. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for is the built-in yeah. excuse. <laughs> yeah, the built-in excuse, yeah. Yeah. You know, if you have a $2,000 setup compound bow that's shooting lasers, you know, like, and you miss, you're like, how did you even do that? But that's the cool thing, man, about hunting animals, man, is you get so worked up you can miss one, you know, you miss a barn with a, with a rifle, you know, <laughs> I think we've all done it. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I don't, you know, we, we talked about your, your products and stuff and, uh, and this kind of almost turned into more of a safety, uh, podcast than, uh, than a, a timber ninja, uh, podcast. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Like with your, uh, products or like any, uh, closing statements? Um, I mean, man, I mean, we have some other products coming out we have, uh, you know, it's not private. We have a camera arm that getting close to being released and, um, a tree stand that we're working, uh, try to have done before the start of season. You know, we've been like everybody else been hindered a little bit with some of this COVID stuff. It, it it's, you know, I was talking to a guy today about it and, I was like, well, ideally my, our goal is September for our tree stand, but I'm saying October just because we don't know. I mean, it's not necessarily a materials issue all the time. It's also becoming a labor issue. There's a lot of people that a lot of, well, a lot of manufacturers that are having a hard time and, and you know, in all businesses, not just manufacturers of getting employees because it's, some people are making more money staying at home. So there's, it's a, it's a crazy time, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, we did turn this into a safety thing and, and like, I hope my comments don't come across like we're trying to 
beat up anybody else, but I think people do need to be aware and ask some questions about how their products are being tested because it, it you know, it, there's not a, a basis of getting into the industry to start selling safe products. Just because somebody puts 300 pounds rated doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean it's really went through the ringer. Um, but, you know, we have some other really exciting news about to hit pretty soon that I think people are going to be really into and falls in line with our conservation initiative. Um, so, yeah, man, just <clears throat> we're going to keep trying to make cool products. Um, we've got other stuff in the in the on the board for next year. So I think it's going to be pretty exciting. man. And we've had a, a really good run so far. We a lot of supportive people and we really appreciate, you know, everybody you know, give us a look and it's fun, man. And I'm just honest. I'm just ready to start hunting. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're, I mean, like we are talking, you know, I'm headed to Colorado with, uh, with my father-in-law and his buddy and, uh, meeting one of our friends out there. And then John's on his way to Montana. So oh, nice. it's going to be, it's going to be, it's coming quick. Like, yeah. Real so, quick. <laughs> I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe not August 5th in Alaska quick, but it's, it's still coming. Oh, dude, yeah. I am. I'm kind of heartbroken that I'm missing elk season this year. I just something about. I just love elk hunting, man. I, it's just. I think because I grew up doing a lot of. I was a duck guide, and I've always turkey hunted. I love calling animals, and it's just something about having an 800 pound animal come into your call screaming at you. Just gets gets me worked up, man. Uh, and especially when they're just screaming at night and you can't sleep. Like when you really get in there and they're turned up, God, it's hard to, it's hard to beat that, you know? Well, that's what we're looking forward to. I mean, we went two years ago basically on our own and got into some elk, but we, we didn't get into that level of action. And, mm. uh, you know, so uh, good, bad, or indifferent, we got, got the taste for elk hunting. And now it's that thing that you're, like man i just want to get out there like last year not going and having to you know watch social media and watch everybody's you know what's going on with elk and the calling and the everything's just you know i i totally feel for you but i'd imagine that uh you know this caribou trip is a you know if you want to be a sheep guide is a step in the right direction to meet the right people and you know get your get your roots buried <laughs> yeah well, it's just, a, I mean, the one thing I really love about all these hunts like that is just being able to get back in there and be away from people and living amongst your own means um, for multiple days. You know, like most of my, well, all of my Western trips, you know, we're, we're back there five to 10 days living off our backs. And, you know, we just don't get a chance to unplug and be in the wild. And, um, so for me, that part of the whole experience is like, is really the, the catalyst, you know, like killing animals, just the icing on the cake for it. Um, and then now like with going this Alaska thing, what I'm really stoked on is just being out there and having, you know, knowing you have to be prepared because you're getting dropped off and you're hundreds of miles from anything. And if weather gets crappy, they're not gonna be able to come get you, you know, like, so you, you gotta have your, T's crossed and your eyes dotted, you know, and I don't, I get worked up about that kind of stuff. And yeah, we'll see, man. Hopefully we don't have any grizzly encounters, but, um, I, I'm not really that concerned about them because, you know, in the area we're going to be in, they get hunted and usually 
from my understanding is areas where they get hunted or they don't really care about being around people, but you know, Montana where they don't get hunted, <laughs> that's where grizzlies are, can be a, can be a booger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where can people follow along with everything that you're doing and, and, and check out your stuff if they are so inclined? Uh, so we're on Instagram at Timber Ninja Outdoors. We're on Facebook at Timber Ninja Outdoors, YouTube, same. And then our website's TimberNinjaOutdoors.com. And, um, yeah, we, we're producing more more uh, YouTube stuff, too, just not really always related to our products, but kind of gear education stuff. We've got some reviews on there. Not reviews necessarily, but just – essential stuff that some people may not know about. Like I do, I did did a whitetail pack dump for mid season. I did a boot review. We're going to do a few more. We're going to do one before I leave for Alaska. And then my partner, Jordan, who's involved in the business, he's going to Idaho elk hunting. We're going to do a kind of a pack dump for people, you know, because this stuff's pretty helpful. You know I mean? If you've never been backpack hunting, for instance, um, it can be kind of overwhelming. So just more information. I mean, we could all benefit from good information. And I love sharing stuff that I may know. I mean, there's a lot of people know more than me, but um, I know a decent amount. Yeah, it kind of goes, uh, some people out west take it for granted. But like that was one of the things when we were getting ready to go out there was like, dude, we made lists. Like, what all do we need? You know, we're starting from scratch, you know, our eastern flatlanders going out there and and we're, you know, we're in the woods for eight days living on our backs, you know, out of yeah. our backpacks. And it was, it was, it was a little bit intimidating at first, but when people like you or we ended up, you know, we, we did a couple podcasts and talked about all that. That's, that's good information. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one that I'm going to do that I think is in my opinion, it's something I continue to improve as well is nutrition for the backcountry, man, like how to pack up to have enough food or not, or not too much food. Because, you know, when you, if you're on an eight day hunt, food is essentially over 30% of your weight. You know I mean? You're looking at two pounds per day is what I, where about where I'm at right now. It's about two pounds a day for food. And, uh, just knowing how to get the right amount of calories to get you through a long hunt because, you know, if you get dehydrated a little bit, it's so hard to recover from that. And it also, like, if you bonk, you know, run out of calories, that's hard to recover from. So there's a there's a science in that to make sure you're dialed. And, um, you know, coming up doing endurance sports, you know, running and cycling, like I have a decent understanding of that, and I've been able to put that into my system. So I am going to do a video and write a blog about some of that too because you know that's something i still play with to make sure it's right uh i don't know about you but every time i go out even a day and thinking i have my calories dialed i still lose about 10 pounds when i go out for like an eight-day hunt yeah i didn't didn't weigh our i didn't weigh myself i don't know if john did when we came back but i mean it was i mean we did over 100 miles in in eight days so yeah we were getting it yeah i always but i always just say that i probably lost that weight just because i'm not drinking beer or (laughs) (laughs) water weight yeah Uh. oh yeah for sure well i think that's all we got for today man just like i said it's just a lot of good information and i like to 
I like where it's coming from, you know, with all of your background and everything is like, you know, it's not a hard sell. It's not, you know, this is what, you know, you built something that you wanted for yourself and then it's just kind of transitioned into, you know, people telling you that, you know, they'd like that too. So. Yeah, it's been fun, man. Um, we look forward to it and, you know, it's been great getting to meet some of the people that are following along and, yeah, it's awesome, man. And I really appreciate you guys having this having us come on, man. Um love to do it again. Hopefully we meet up in person some someday. I know you met Adrian, so um, <laughs> I ap- apologize for that. But uh Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, I, I'm sure we'll bump in. I think we'll probably go to ATA this year. We keep having people asking us if we're gonna go and I think we'll go at least this year. Or not this year, you know, twenty twenty one. Right. Yeah. We'll we'll look but, forward to uh getting some of that weight back up with a couple beers here and there then. <laughs> yeah. Roger that, man. Um, man, I hope you guys have fun and definitely keep me in the loop about how your trips out West go. I, I love hearing those types of stories. Yeah. We'll definitely be in touch. So, uh, ha- have fun in Alaska and, uh, you know, good luck. Stay so, safe. As soon as you, uh, get that guide service. So we're going to have the, uh, uh, podcast discount. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to scheme on that, man. I actually, yeah, I'm trying to continue to network in those areas. I want to get that going sooner than later. I'd love to be spending months to 45 days a year in the mountain, the big, big mountains. That'd be awesome. Cool. All right. We'll, uh, cool. We'll talk to you in a bit. All right. Y'all have a good week. Yeah. Talk to